you ask me. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24, says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. The same account in Luke's gospel, I believe it is, said they dug down to the rock. Verse 26 says, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Amen. With the help of the Lord this morning, I'm going to be ministering to you from this thought, from the ground up. From the ground up. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your presence. We just pray that as we open your word, that we would also open our hearts. Lord, that our faith would be mingled with your word, that it would be profitable for us. ask you for your anointing. ask you, Lord, to use me to deliver your will and purpose. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, simple yet very powerful parable in Matthew chapter 7 speaks very strongly to us of the importance of a good foundation, of having the right foundation. In the parable, it is in fact the foundation, not the house, that determines whether or not anything remains after the storm has come through. It also tells us that the foundation that is the easiest to build upon is not necessarily the best. Sand offers very little resistance to the builder who digs there. Sand willingly is moved around to accommodate the desires of the builder, but Sadly, sand also offers very little resistance to the wind and to the rain when it comes. The Bible lets us know that Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8, says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 says, For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's worth noting that Abraham actually left a city behind him. Sometimes when we read of his life, we often think of him dwelling in tents as, that, as if that was all he ever did, but he left a city. He was raised, the Bible tells us, in the city called Ur of the Chaldees, a place where it seems that the people there worshipped the moon or the moon god, and that's possibly his heritage. But God called him and he left that city and he began to live in tents with his descendants because he was looking for a place that God had designed. He was looking for a place where God would be worshipped not the false gods of his fathers. This was a city that had foundations that you could trust, that you could depend upon. And the foundation is preparation for the original designer's plan. When a foundation is laid, it is the, the first physical structure that is added to a site, and it is the first part, if you like, of the blueprints of a house or a building. If you were able to look down on a foundation from above, it could also be described as the footprint of the house or seeing the outline or the shape of that which is to come. A foundation is set. It is established 
It is permanent. The 119th Psalm, the 89th verse says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The foundation is set. It is permanent. It's interesting to me that this verse in the 119th Psalm has a prophetic element to it. Because when this psalm was written, Scripture was still being written. God was still speaking after this psalm was written, and yet it was already considered to be settled in heaven. The things that were yet to be said and yet to be written in the mind of God were already permanent, were already settled in heaven. And a house, a house reveals or demonstrates, or we might even say manifests, the intent and the purpose of the foundation. A foundation by itself still leaves a lot that is yet to be revealed, a lot that is yet to be visible, to be seen. I've never been through the experience of building a house myself. Some of you have, I have not. But as my parents began to build their house in preparation for moving here, I was, I guess, kind of their eyes on the ground. So I was backwards and forwards to the house as it was being built and FaceTiming with with mum and dad so they could see everything that was going on. And when the slab was laid, to me it was just a big concrete block. Yeah, I, I couldn't really look at it. I could guess where things might be. You know, if, if there's a drain coming out, you have a fair idea that might be where one of the bathrooms is. You don't, you don't have to be an expert to work that out. But I could not see the detail from the foundation. But my dad could because he designed the house and he knew what was coming. And so as I would walk around with my phone and he'd say, okay, well, that's the bathroom, that's the linen cupboard, that's the kitchen, this is the... He knew where everything was going to be before it was there because he designed the house and he was the designer. Amen. And in a similar fashion, but at a much greater level, God had a plan. God had a design that was around before creation ever took place. John 1 and 1, if you can't quote it, it's worth memorizing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you Bible scholars know that that word is translated from the Greek word logos, which means the plan, but also the expression of that plan. The concept right through to the plan being fulfilled and so because God is so incredible there were things that he had planned that were already in the plan before anything was visible before whatever we understand to be the beginning before the foundation and and even when the foundation of the world was laid and even before the foundation God had a plan let me give you just a few examples of that Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34 It says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There was a kingdom prepared for the people of God from the time the earth was formed. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love. That tells me that before God even spoke the earth into existence, he knew that he was going to have a church. He knew that he was going to have a body of believers that would respond to the gospel message, that would hear the word of God, that would have faith and would believe the things that were promised in the scripture. That ought to blow our minds a little bit this morning, that he was preparing for us before there was even an earth in existence. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath. 
if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. God made it possible. God's plan was already making it possible for us to enter into his rest from the very beginning. From the very beginning. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Who verily or truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, speaking of Jesus, but was manifest in these last times for you. There was a plan that we would have a Savior from the very, very beginning. And Revelation 13 and 8, along the same lines, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So as God was saying, let there be light. In his plan, Calvary already existed. As he spoke and separated water from dry land, created the firmament, brought forth the plants and the the shrubs and the grass and the sea brought forth life and creeping, crawling things and beasts and everything came into existence. And on the, that, that last final act, he made man in his own image. But while he was doing that, Calvary was already in the plan. The fact that we would need a savior, that we would need a substitute, that there would have to be somebody whose blood would be able to pay the price for our sins was already there from the very, very beginning. These things were all in the blueprints from the very beginning. They were all a part of the plan of God. They were all a part of the word of God, of the Logos. So God laid the foundation for his plan. He set out the stage. He put everything in place. And then in John 1 and 14, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That had been planned from the very beginning. In fact, it was the reason the foundation was laid. There needed to be something that he could be our savior for. And when Jesus was manifest, when he was revealed, the Bible says that God was manifest in the flesh. The house, if you'll allow me a little poetic license, the house became visible. The temple of God became visible. He described his body as a temple. In John 2 and 19, it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple. They were thinking building. He was thinking humanity. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was the visible truth. John 14 and 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That same idea is underlined in Colossians 1 and 15, where it says, who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature. And so from even before there was an earth, God had a blueprint. God had a plan. He laid a foundation when he made the earth. He brought his image creature into that environment. But when the word was made flesh, the house became visible. The plan of God took on a visible form that we could see and begin to understand why he came and what he came to do. And because his humanity... In his humanity, Jesus was in perfect submission to the Spirit of God. He was perfectly aligned with the foundation. He was perfectly in line with the original blueprint. Everything he did was the perfect will of God. Everything he said was the perfect will of God. Every, every action, every thought, every interaction, he was perfectly aligned with the plan. That's why he's our role model. But that perfect alignment was so exact that even in the face of horrific trauma and suffering, 
even as Calvary drew near, only hours away, he was able to say in Luke 22 and 42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Even in the face of that death that you and I cannot begin to comprehend, he was in perfect alignment with the blueprint. His life lined up exactly as God had meant it to be because he was God manifest in the flesh in that perfect man. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had compassion. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed the leper. He delivered the demon-possessed. This was the visible of the plan. This was the expression of God. This was his temple built on God's foundation. People could see God's plan in action. They could see the love of God. They could see the compassion and the power and the grace and the mercy of God in action. But he also rebuked the Pharisees. He also chastised the scribes. He confronted those who misused and twisted the word of God because it was his word. He went into something that was supposed to be his house. Kind of amazing that God manifest in the flesh took that temple into the old temple. He went into there and they were doing everything they shouldn't have been doing and he flipped the tables over. And, you know, I often, I say this semi-humorously, but when people ask you, when they say, what would Jesus do, you have to remember that included a whip and flipping tables. It was, we, we ask that question sometimes because we want a gentle, soft rep- response. The Lord had the other side of his character as well. where he, he did not speak kindly to the Pharisees. Now, we're living in a politically correct world, and I think we should never be deliberately offensive. But truth is truth. Truth is truth. He was willing to suffer when he had done no wrong because he was submitted to a higher plan. He knew there were blueprints. He wasn't staggering around in the dark. The Bible describes him prophetically as having his face set like flint. In other words, it's not going to change. He had a purpose. He knew exactly. He wasn't getting up and trying to work it out each day on the fly. He knew his purpose. He knew the will of God. He knew every last detail, and he kept that. He did not compromise on one millimeter of the foundation. But his house, again, using that word, totally fulfilled the designer's purpose. You see, that's what Bethlehem was for. That's why wise men worshipped him. So I'm not preaching this morning about shepherds and mangers and all the, we're not singing Christmas carols, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have to understand the Christmas story is about the cross. The, the manifestation of Jesus Christ is about being our sacrifice. It's not just about a pure and innocent child, it's about a pure and innocent man that was crucified in our place, that took our sin. So that's Jesus. But what about us? What about our house this morning? If you think back to our opening text in Matthew, it is the foundation that must first be established if the house is going to survive. We need to know what we are built upon. It's too late to check when the storm comes. Too late to say, well, am I going to survive when the storm hits? No, we, we do that. You know, when the bad weather comes, we, well, I need to clean the gutters. Any man ever felt like that? Well, it's winter. I should do something about the gutters. You're supposed to get that done earlier, and all of a sudden, we're sorry. We'll try better next winter. But it's, it's too late when the rain comes and the wind blows. We need to know what our foundation is and what we are built upon. 
First Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 9. The Apostle Paul said, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me. As a wise master builder, he said, I'm not doing this out of my own abilities or my own ideas. It's by the grace of God. But he said, I've laid the foundation and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul, in that last verse, wasn't teaching us that there are no other foundations. He was telling us that if we're going to be God's building, this is the only foundation. There's a lot of other foundations out there, but he said, if we're going to be God's building, if we're going to be a place that He builds, that He inhabits, that He endorses, that He recognizes as His, then there's only one foundation that we can use. Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 23 to 22. It says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, not some of it, but all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. This is talking about the church as a body, but the same principle is applied to us as individuals because the individuals make the body. You need the parts to make the whole in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I want you to notice in verses 21 and 22, it describes growing and building together in present tense. It's not a past event. It's not a once-off, but it's, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I wanted to point that out. But the foundation... What we build upon is the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Let's break that up a little bit. The apostles, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Speaking of the church that's freshly born on the day of Pentecost, it says, And they continued steadfastly. There was a consistency, a determination in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's the apostles' doctrine. The prophets, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, God said it how it's meant to be. You don't get to write it your own script. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Again, it's not man's will, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the foundation is both Old and New Testaments together. But then with everything measured from and pointing to Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. If you know anything about a cornerstone, it is the first stone that is laid. It is the one that everything is measured from. It is important to get it right. I've shared some of these examples before, but when I was a teenager maybe about 14, 15 years old, I had, we had family friends and the, the father of this family was a bricklayer. And uh, in my ignorant foolishness of youth, I agreed to go out and work with him for a couple of days in the school holidays. He nearly killed me. We'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning 
start mixing cement and carrying bricks and by about 8 o'clock in the morning I was convinced it was lunchtime. I thought I was going to die. I think I had four pies for breakfast that day. But when you watch the, a professional bricklayer put a string line in place, and this is the old school, they're probably doing it all with digital devices now, but when they put a string line in place, when they began the building, he took a lot of time to get that first mark right. Because when the cornerstone is crooked, even by a little bit, by the time you get to the end of the wall, that gap is widening all the way. That's why it is so important. We are instructed, exhorted, encouraged in the Word of God to rightly divide the Word of truth, to know how to measure the Scripture. It's great to read it. We've got to work it more than just reading. We've got to understand it so that we can understand how to measure. Because if you don't have a reference point, how in the world can you measure anything? We've got to have a foundation. We've got to have a cornerstone because when the wind blows and the rain falls, I need to know where I'm measured from. I need to know what I'm standing on. I need to know that when I get up in the morning and the clouds have gone and the sun's come back out, my house still stands. I've got to know what our foundation is because it is our foundation that anchors us. Anything that blows away in a storm wasn't anchored to the foundation in the first place. So what was the apostles' doctrine that they continued in? Reference in Acts chapter 2. I could spend a lot of time on this, but for the sake of not doing so this morning, the apostles' doctrine can be grouped into three categories. The first one is who Jesus is. Peter's message on the day of Pentecost centered on establishing, establishing who Jesus was and why he'd been crucified. The second group is how can I be saved? If he died for my sins, how do I take hold of that? That was the question they asked Peter. And the third group that we could put the apostles' doctrine into is how does he want me to live? Who is Jesus? How can I be saved? And how does he want me to live? They are the three most important questions you will ever answer in this life because that's how you know what you're built upon. If you can't answer those questions, your foundation is blurry. We've got to have the foundation in place. To briefly answer the first question, who is Jesus? He's God manifest in the flesh. He is the demonstration of the love of God. He is the fulfillment of the plan of God. He is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Not his body, but his spirit. He is the one who met with Abraham while Abraham sat in the door of his tent in Genesis. He's the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He told them in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And every Jewish listener that heard him say those words, that they knew that he was claiming to be the God of Moses. He's the one, when we get to the New Testament, who Joseph was told would be Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph was told that his wife was going to have a child, that child's name would be Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. That's a very brief couple of statements about who Jesus is. And if you've been here for very long, you know I could preach on that for a few hours, but we won't do that this morning. The second question, how can I be saved? When Peter had finished telling the crowd in Acts chapter 2 who Jesus was and the fact that they had been part of humanity being responsible for his crucifixion, 
they said to him in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, when they begin to grasp, because if you go back and read the rest of that chapter, you'll find that there was 120 people in an upstairs room in Jerusalem praying, waiting for a promise that God had said would come. And on the, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the Bible says there came a sound like a rushing mighty wind that filled the house where they were in tongues of fire. It wasn't literal fire, but symbolically they could see tongues of fire sitting upon their heads and they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God enabled them to do so. It was the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. It was the promise of the Father. And Peter got up and the crowd said, these people are all drunk. They're crazy. Peter said, hey, guys, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. He said, but this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied that in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and on and on. And then he, he, he didn't stop there. He said he, he brought it back to the present. He said, this is talking about Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter answered their first question, who is Jesus? Then they asked the second one, what do we need to do? And then Peter said unto them, repent, turn away from your sins. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He said, if you've got faith to do what God said, what's just happened to us can happen to you. That's why speaking in tongues is the consistent biblical evidence of the initial infilling of the Holy Ghost we have throughout the book of Acts. He said, this promise, he said, is for a limited time only for the New Testament church for the next two weeks. That's what some people want you to believe, that the Holy Ghost was just a little bit of a rocket to give the church a bit of a boost, get it going, gain some No, he said, this promise is unto you, it's to your children, and it's to as many as, as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's for everybody. And everybody that's been filled with the Holy Ghost in this place can say amen that the promise is still for us. The question is, how do I be saved? I'm not intending to be critical or harsh this morning, but so much of what falls under the umbrella of modern Pentecost has only claimed part of this promise. The infilling of the Holy Ghost. But Peter also told them they had to be baptized in Jesus' name. If you claim to be an apostolic Pentecostal, you need to obey this verse and be born of water and spirit. Not just spirit. Water and spirit. Then our purpose, then our purpose or how we ought to live is to demonstrate what should be on the foundation just like Jesus did. There's a house that God wants to build each of us as. We understand it's not a physical house, but he said that we, we are the temples of the Holy Ghost. When you've been filled with the promise of the Father, you become a temple of the living God, and he wants to renovate you more than you ever thought was possible. And that wherever you've come from, whatever your old life used to look like, he can renovate that house, and he can turn it around, and he can fill you with his spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus is our example. Our purpose is to demonstrate the design of the foundation. God, how do you want me to be built? You know, not, well, Lord, I'd actually rather that the lounge room was over here. I think I need more room in the kitchen. I have like six bathrooms, not five. I don't think it's quite enough. But we've got to say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. 
He's the master designer. Amen. The Word of God is our foundation. But now it is up to you and I to display the how, just as he did. You know, when he, wa- he ministered for some three, some say three and a half years, turned the world upside down. All of humanity looks back to that time. It affected the world in a way that the world has never been the same. Whether, whether there are countries that claim to be Christian or not, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ impacted all of humanity in three and a half years. And he's still impacting life today. To use a natural parallel, when they, when they open up new suburbs in our city, they begin to develop new areas. The developers who obviously are trying to make some money, they want people to come and see what they're offering. The streets go in, the footpaths are laid, the street lights are put up, and then what do they normally do? They build a display village. They build a display village, usually a street or a couple of streets full of shiny new homes. And they put all the extra stuff in the houses, and the price they give you is the price without the extra stuff. But hey, that's just a sales technique. But what they are showing is this is what you could have if you moved into this neighborhood. If you would accept our plan, if you would sign your life away for the next 30 years with the bank, this is what you could have. This is where your family could live. And people go out. We'd go out on Saturday mornings, and we... if. Maybe I'm being a bit stereotypical, but often when we're young and we have big plans, we think, well, we'll go out, we'll, we'll find a house for $100,000. This is going back a few years. And then you go to the display village, and what do you know? It's $150,000 for the house. And suddenly you let somebody to bank talking you into borrowing more money than you ever thought you would be willing to do, and, and that's kind of how the mortgage industry works. But you don't ever hear about people going out on a Saturday morning to a a new development to look at a row of concrete slabs on the street. Foundations are important. But we don't drive around and say, man, look at that foundation. That's the nicest concrete I've ever seen. I want to buy that house. Because it doesn't tell us anything. We understand that the foundation is important. We understand that without a foundation, you don't have a house. You can just put a tent on a block. But nobody drives around town looking at slabs. And I think, well, I want to live in this neighborhood because I really like the concrete they've used. We want to see a house. We want to see something that might be our dream family home. We want to see something that might be more than we ever dreamed was possible. That's what the Word of God is about. He's laid a foundation, but it's up to you and I to be the display homes so people can say, hey, maybe there's hope for my family. Maybe there's hope for me that he could do that with my life. Maybe even though I don't think I can afford it, maybe I could be something like that. And we get an opportunity to tell them about His grace and about His mercy and about His love and how even though, yes, they might see something in us, it's not about us. It's about the one who lives inside of us. It's about the one that's taken up residence within our house. The old song says, you know, I once was lost. Now I'm found, I once was blind, but now I'm see. We were once a mess, and I don't care if you thought your life was pretty good, but if you're in sin, you were a mess. But then God came along. And like the psalmist said so wonderfully, He restoreth my soul. You know, there are houses, people, they're, they're, I think there are TV shows about, I don't watch them, but where people buy old houses and and do them up and then sell them and make a whole lot of money and you can do that. You know, there, there are some houses that they look at and they go, nah, this one's just not worth the investment. 
the roof's fallen in. There's more marsupials living in that house than the national park. It's just the, the city council's condemned it. It's just a mess. And they walk away and say, I'm not interested. God will never, ever, ever do that. It does not matter how broken your life is. It does not matter how fallen down it is. It doesn't matter how many people have written you off. He said, I've already paid for it. If you would allow me to, I can restore. I can renovate. I can replace. I can heal. I can rebuild. He doesn't just do a makeover. He rebuilds us from the inside out. That's why we need to demonstrate the house. We need to be able to demonstrate the compassion that Jesus had, to love others, to be able to pray for the sick, see them healed, pray for the demon-possessed, see them delivered. People should see the peace and joy that we have. It's not just for Christmas carols. That's for every day of the year. Amen. But just like Jesus as the house of God, we also need to know what is of God, what is not, what is false doctrine, what is empty religion, and what is Scripture. Because we've got to line up with the blueprint. We've got to line up with the original design. A house looks funny. There's a house sitting on it, a big old piece of slab sticking out. And I've shared this before, but when I was a little boy, my mum and dad built our first home. And dad designed that one as well back then, but the foundation was shaped like a letter L, two pieces. And when mum and dad first built the house, I may have this wrong, mum can correct me if I am, but my understanding was that they had enough money to build the house on the first part, and then the second part was coming soon. And so as a kid, I used to ride my tricycle around on the second part, which was just a great slab of concrete to ride your tricycle on. But later, it was completed. And when God starts in your life, Let's be honest, we want God to do everything in week one. We say, God, I've brought you this broken down shack, and I just want you to fix it. I'm looking for a six-bedroom mansion by Thursday afternoon. But God begins a process. God begins a process because before he builds, he digs. He takes out brokenness, and he begins a process where he builds us into something. Now, it's interesting in John, this isn't in my notes or, in, or on the slides, but in John chapter 14, at the beginning, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. You know, when you, when you think about heaven, the size of a house, but the Lord's conveying something. The, the mansions in heaven, that's the ultimate fulfillment of what He's doing in us. It's not about having the biggest house in the street. There's no market value in heaven. You can't sell your mansion. You can't, oh, market's good this millennial. I might sell the mansion. But it's the Lord is letting us know it's, it's kind of a type of what he does in us here that he's going to fulfill when we get there. Amen. As the musicians come, we're gonna, I'm going to get the worship team to lead us in a chorus. We're going to get ready to baptize Brother Josh Cat and Sister Angelique in Jesus' name this morning. I want to both encourage you and challenge you, if I can, this morning. You need to know what you're building on. Or else how else can you build? How do you know where to put a wall if you don't know where the foundation is? You need to know your foundation. How will you know where things are supposed to be and where they're not supposed to be? And as you grow in understanding of the foundation, it will be reflected in your house. The 127th Psalm, verse 1, says, Except 
the Lord builds a house. They that labor in vain that build it. You may have all the wealth of this world. You may live down on the river, have a, your own yacht. If you do, that's great. We'll come to your house. But none of that's of value in eternity because the Scripture tells us that there's a place we can lay up treasure that cannot be corrupted or rusted. It's in heaven. So we need to know that as the house that God is building, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. Jesus told us, not Jesus, rather, but the Apostle Paul wrote and said that when God begins something in us, He starts a work in us. He wants to finish it. He's not a half-completed renovator. If you will trust Him, He will finish the renovation in your life. One last verse. I'll just get my wife to take that off. Josh takes different ones a week to get ready. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. God's not going to change. He's not changing regardless of what the world does. And it's sealed with these two things. That foundation is sealed with two things. First, the Lord knows them that are His. God knows you. If you're His, if you're born again of water and spirit, you're His child. God knows them that are His. And the second part of the seal is, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We've got to be saved. We've got to live the way He wants us to live. Build a house that glorifies and honors Him. Stand with me if you would this morning. Let's just lift our hands, worship the Lord for a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, build your house in us. We pray in the name of Jesus.